That debt ceiling bill must traverse a tortured path to become law. Nothing's guaranteed quite yet. But presuming it does become law, it will put defense and non-defense spending under caps, even with a military pay raise staying in place. Contractors are analyzing what exactly it all means. David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, finds more questions than answers, and he joins me now. And, David, you have read the 99-page report. 99 pretty brief by congressional standards, but still a lot of stuff that's hard to decipher. And spending caps plus no real agency-by-agency spending plan, and that to you leads to some pretty tough questions. Right, Tom. Thank you for having me on here. And you're right, it's only 99 pages, but of course, like many legislative proposals, you actually have to refer to the underlying provisions that are being modified in order to tell what the language actually does. But the big deal for us is is the money side. Uh, as you well know, without funding, there's no contract, right? And, and the work that contractors do is not just for the money. It's actually to keep the agencies operating and moving forward, everything from legacy systems modernization to day-to-day operations to innovation for the future. So this Fiscal Responsibility Act puts some real constraints around spending for FY24. Now, Tom, we're on the eve of the 1st of June. June, July, August, September, we're only four months away from the start of fiscal year 24. So there's not a lot of time to figure it out. And this bill, while it sets overall caps, as you point out, doesn't distribute that money agency by agency, appropriations bill by appropriations bill, except for defense and for part of VA. Right. So they, in a sense, missed an opportunity to do some important work towards not having a Lord knows how long continuing resolution in fashioning this. They still have the question of actually getting around to appropriations for 2024, which doesn't seem too likely at this point. No, you're right. And, and, uh, you know, we've only had some agencies have had two appropriations on time in the last 17 years. Others have had one on time, and that was in 2000, FY 2009. So that's quite a while back, 15 years ago for many agencies. So we expect to start the fiscal year under a CR. The question is, how long will it last? And actually, one of the interesting provisions here is if we're still under a CR on January 1st, which is true more than half the time, then there will be an automatic 1% reduction uh, from the FY23 spending level. A CR is typically last year's level carried forward into next year with no new starts and no stops. That 1% reduction could be a big deal depending on your estimates of inflation especially. Right. And you also questioned whether the uh, DOD's legislative proposal to allow it to start new programs even under a CR, that's kind of in doubt now, too. Well, it's a really interesting proposal. It's in the, you know, every year the Defense Department sends up several tranches of legislative proposals. They get developed inside DOD. They have to be cleared by the Office of Management and Budget before they're submitted to Congress. The third tranche released a couple months ago had a very interesting provision that said uh, that they would allow the Air Force, and presumably if the provision was adopted, it would apply to the other military departments as well, would allow the Air Force to spend some research and development money on new starts, even though you were under continuing resolution and new starts are banned. Very limited in scope, very focused, and, and the language tied to this from OMB made it clear this is in response to the need to move faster because of the threats from China. Right Now, I don't know what the, in the bill would require that right, and, and would make you want to do that. And this is designed to be something the authorizing committees would pass All the appropriators have to do is not interfere with it, and it would allow some of that to start to take place. 
Very interesting idea, probably even more important under the Fiscal Responsibility Act than it was before. Hard to tell how that's going to work out. Right. And it's also worth noting that the last year's NDAA didn't really get done till the stroke of minutes to the deadline, which was not the end of the fiscal year, but the end of the calendar year. And now here we are four months, as you point out, toward the end of the fiscal year. Will they get that NDAA done by the end of the fiscal or the calendar? That's also up in the air. Big question as well. Now, for defense, this bill does allow you to do two things that's not true for most civilian agencies. It actually sets a target, so we know what the amount would be. That gives both the authorizers and the appropriators something to aim for. They don't have to have a congressional budget resolution in order to do that. For the civilian agencies, on the other hand, uh, that's not at all the case, although there is amount set aside for the VA. Uh, that VA is merged with MILCON, military construction, in separate appropriations account. Other appropriations, the other nine appropriations bills for the federal civilian agencies, we don't know how much they're going to get. If you cap it at FY23 levels, that doesn't necessarily mean each agency will get what it got into FY23. This really has to be worked out very, very quickly, and uh, and I don't have a clue how, how this is going to play out. And what we know is that if you don't know how much money you're going to get next year, you're not as eager to spend this year's money. And again, there's only four months left in this fiscal year. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. So that makes it hard for agencies to plan, and therefore they tend to pull in on spending because they don't know what's going to happen. And that cascades down into what contractors can do to plan for their own fiscal financial futures. That does. It absolutely does. And and if we do end up with a continuing resolution, which is probably pretty much a certainty for the start of fiscal year 24. The question is, do we have an agreement on the spending levels at that point? Can we get that wrapped up and out the door before the, before Christmas, as you point out, that we typically do? Or does it extend into next year? Next year, of course, is an election year. And once you get into an election year, it kind of seems like we're already there sometimes, doesn't it? But once you get into an election year, it's much harder to cut those kinds of deals. We really need to avoid the risk of multiple sequential continuing resolution three months into December, another three months into March, then get through the whole fiscal year. And then you're only weeks away from a presidential election, so you probably get another CR for FY25 and on beyond there. It would be a disaster for federal operations. And even if they were to somehow come up with budgets, if the caps that are in place because of the most recent bill, again, not law yet, but we presume it will be after they get the party flanks kind of in line, it would probably be below the inflation level because inflation isn't what it was at the peak of a year ago, but it's still there, 5 6%, 4 5%. And then you couple in a healthy pay raise for the civilian and defense sides that squeezes out money for these discretionary acquisition spending. Fair to say? Yes. Let's look at the numbers, right? So we know that OMB's directed inflation estimates for the F. 24 budget was 2.4%. FY24 starts in four months. Inflation right now is not showing any sign of being under 2.4% by the time you get to October. And if it's over 2.4% in October, then it has to go below 2.4% at some point during the fiscal year for that to make sense. Odds are inflation will be higher than what's built into the budget. On top of that, Agencies are, are getting only the same amount of money, unless you're a defense or VA, only the same amount of money as you got in FY23. So that means you're not even getting that 2.4%. You're getting zero. But built into that is a 4.6% pay raise, as you point out, both for civilians and for uniform personnel. This is a prescription for really tight squeezes elsewhere. 
History says when there's tight squeezes elsewhere, contractors end up paying more than their fair share of that contribution. That's what we're worried about. And I wanted to ask you, too, about something that uh, we've noticed, you have noticed. I think our colleague Jared Serbu wrote about it at federalnewsnetwork.com, and a couple of my guests in recent weeks have commented on it. And that is, oddly, there was no real strong guidance from the Office of Management and Budget to agencies about what to do in the case of a debt ceiling crisis or whatever you want to call it, the ceiling being reached. They do this regularly when CRs come around or when there's the threat of a lapse in appropriations, but no real guidance this time around, and we're going to be there again sooner than anyone realizes. Tom, this is the 11th time in the last 13 years that we've had a debt limit crisis, so it's reasonable to assume it's not going to be the last. Right. It's almost now become an annual exercise. Now, if this bill passes, it punts it until 2025 so we can get through all of 2024 without another debt ceiling crisis. But it is coming on us. There was no guidance out from OMB, as you mentioned. And in our conversations with agencies, and you can see it through reporters' conversations as well, they were all over the map. We had agencies that said, we don't have a problem. We have plenty of appropriations. Well, that's true. But if Treasury doesn't have the cash to pay the bills, then it doesn't matter how much appropriation you have. We had agencies that said, this is just going to be like a government shutdown. Let's figure out who's essential and who's not. Let's figure out where we issue stop work orders. But without, without a lapse in appropriations, that make no sense at all. PSC argued that, in fact, we could take a different approach and urged OMB, instead of looking at shutting down, instead send the signal that even under default, the government is still operating, fully functioning, because what's going to happen if we default? more than likely we get a deal really quickly, right? Because you'd see a lot of big problems in the financial marketplace affecting everybody globally as well. Plan for that. Plan that you're not going to be shutting down. Keep it going. We'd love to see OMB wrestle with that question. We desperately need agencies to have the guidance because we heard over and over again, hey, we're waiting for guidance from OMB and we don't have any yet. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And I hope that the next time we're not talking about deadlines. Let's hope so. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.